All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Hebrews chapter 9. I think it's on page 1281 if you're going to use one of the Bibles that we provide underneath the chair in front of you. And um, before I read the text, uh, one of the things I love about our church is, you know, we get to just come as we are and be honest. Uh, We don't have to put on a show. And um, there is a uh, a guy I follow on Twitter that posts uh, funny church slogans that he sees on church signs. And usually they're pretty cheesy, like God answers knee mail and stuff like that. But my favorite one he's ever seen, that he's ever posted, it was awesome. It's two lines. It said, our pastor isn't very good, but his sermons are short. <laughs> and, well, that is awesome. And um, I, uh, something I have uh, eaten recently is not agreeing with me, and I'm not feeling good, and um, you're, I think you're safe there in the spray zone here. But um, I don't know if this sermon's going to be good, but it's going to be short. Um, so we're going to get through this together. Let's uh, read. Kids, if you're tracking the word today, it's going to be death. And um, and away we go. Um, hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 15. Therefore... He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the the blood of calves and goats with the water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. To put away sin by his sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those 
who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I uh, praise your name. I know that when I am weak, then I am strong. And um, pray that you'd help me uh, to be strong and explain the things in this text that we need to hear from you today. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the one who will take God's word and apply it to the hearts of all of us here. Thankful that your word never goes out without, it never goes out and returns empty. It always comes back having accomplished the purpose for which you sent it. So we trust that'll happen today. And we pray that you will use this time to help us know you more and to grow in faith and to be more equipped and excited to continue to take the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was talking, somebody on the worship team commented how this is such a bloody passage, and it really is, and it's, I mean, there's so much about blood and about uh, the things that took place in the Old Testament, and you got to keep in mind that blood is meant to be something that points to death, okay, that's something that can help us understand what is the author's teaching us in this part of the book of Hebrews. Blood is representative of a death, okay, in fact, even when we take communion, If you think about it, we take the bread first, and then we take the wine second. And Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. And the reason that they're separated is because if your body is here and your blood is here, guess what you are? Dead. And so that's how even communion is a celebration of his death. You know, Paul says we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so when we're thinking about blood, we, we need to connect that with death. And really with the death of Christ. And the death of Christ is what our faith is about. In fact, let me read you this quote from J.C. Ryle. This is really powerful. He says this. He says, We can never attach too much importance to the atoning death of Christ. It is the leading fact in the word of God and on which The eyes of our soul ought to be ever fixed. He says, uh, without the shedding of his blood, there is no remission of sin. He says, it is the cardinal truth on which the whole system of Christianity hinges. Without it, without the death of Christ, the gospel is an arch without a keystone. It's a fair building without a foundation. It's a solar system without a sun. This, after all, is the master truth of Scripture, that Christ died for our sins. To this, let us daily return. On this, let us daily feed our souls. Some, like the Greeks of old, may sneer at the doctrine and call it foolishness. But let us never be ashamed to say with the Apostle Paul, be it far from me to boast, except in the cross or in the death, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is so powerful because we're going to talk all so much about death and the blood in this passage. And um, what we can, what we have to hold on to and have to understand is that so much of our faith is centered on the death of Christ. And you know, we want to be a gospel-centered church or a Christ-centered church. But if those terms don't mean a cross-centered church, then we're not as in line with the scriptures as we want to be. 
really what is at the center of our faith is this death of Christ. It's what separates, one of the things that separates what we believe from other religions. Uh, a man named Ajith Fernando says, most other religions are based on their teachings. Christianity is based on the death of Christ and the resurrection that attests its efficacy. And so what I want to do this morning is roll right through each of these verses, and I want to talk about five reasons that we see, uh, five reasons the death of Christ is so central to what we believe, five reasons the death of Christ matters so much to you and to me. And we're going to just go right through, so keep your Bibles open, look at verses 15 through 18 first. Here's the first reason. Number one, the death of Christ is the source of all redemption. The death of Christ is the source of all redemption. Take a look at 15 through 18. He says, therefore, he, meaning Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant for a will for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now, here's what is so powerful about this. He's talking to these Hebrew Christians. He's helping them understand that they've shifted now from being under the old covenant to now being under the new covenant. And he's very clearly telling them that under the old covenant, the reason that their sins were forgiven is because of this coming death. Look, he's talking about it's the death of Christ that redeems them who sinned under the old covenant. And what that tells us, we already know that it's the death of Christ that pays for our sins under the new covenant. But what we see here and what's helpful uh, from the author is to see that the death of Christ is the source of all redemption. Everybody who's ever been saved has been saved because of the death of Christ. Under the, the believers in the Old Testament were saved sort of beforehand and we are saved afterward. But it all culminates at the death of Christ. So the death of Christ is the source of all redemption. Number two, look at verses 19 through 22. Here's the second point for this morning. God gave the law with the death of Christ in mind. Okay. God gave the law when he gave the law to Moses, when he gave them the old covenant at Mount Sinai. God gave the law with the death of Christ in mind. Verse 19. He says, For when every commandment of the law had been declared to Moses, to all the people, uh, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Uh, And he was saying, and when he did that, he said, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent... That was the place where they worshipped. And all the vessels used in worship, all these different things that were involved in worship, everything got just sprinkled with blood. 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Purified meaning ritually or ceremonially. Under the law, virtually everything was purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. Now, notice this clear connection in the text that he's making between the law and blood. The law and blood. Blood meaning death. And blood sprinkled all over the things that they would even use in worship. And ultimately, what the author is showing here is that 
even throughout all of the Old Testament, all the sacrifices and all of the blood that was shed, all of that was actually always pointing forward to the blood of Christ. In other words, even under the Old Covenant, the law never made people right with God. It wasn't obeying the law that made people right with God. It was faith, just like it is today. And the reason that God had them sprinkle blood on everything having to do with the law is so they wouldn't trust in the law, but rather in a substitute. In the death that they deserve to die, being carried out on something else, on a substitute, on these animals that were sacrificed. And so it's the same now as it was then, meaning that we're not saved by what we do. We're only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Like Paul says in Galatians 2.16, he says, we know that a person is not justified, that's declared righteous. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, not, or in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He keeps repeating that thought over and over and over. We're not justified by works of the law. We are only justified by grace through faith in Jesus. And so even the law, when it was given, included the command to cover everything with blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Meant to teach them to trust in the death of a substitute in their place. And the other thing that we see in that sacrificial system then is, is this humanly hard to reconcile thing where God is both just and he's merciful. He's just, he must punish sin. He is a just judge. But he also is a loving father who wants to be merciful and forgive our sin. And so he accepts the death of a substitute in the place of the sinner. And therefore, justice is carried out and mercy is given out as well. And we see that in the sacrificial system. And when God gave the law, gave that sacrificial system, he did it with Christ in mind. The fact that it would ultimately be Christ, not the blood of these animals, but Christ's blood that would reconcile us to God. So even today, it's we're not made right by the things that we do or the things that we don't do. We're not made right by coming to worship. We're not made right by showing up at our life group. We're not made right by reading our Bible. We're not made right by avoiding certain sins. The one thing that makes us right with God is the blood of Christ being applied to us. And we receive it through faith. So even the law, the whole time, there was so much blood to point to death, the death of Christ. And God gave the law with the death of Christ in mind. Number three. A relationship with God depends on the death of Christ. There is no possible way to have a relationship with God apart from the death of Christ. It's the death of Christ that makes it, makes us able, makes any human being able to have any type of relationship with God. Look at 23 and 24. He says, thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. So he's talking about the blood being sprinkled on all the things in worship. 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This is a little, this part of the passage is pretty tricky. And there's a few different views because if you notice, he's talking about the things in worship were sprinkled with blood to ceremonially purify them. But then he says that the heavenly things themselves are cleansed or purified with better sacrifices. And that should sort of want to make us want to kind of hit the pause button and think, wait, what in heaven needs cleansing? What, what are the heavenly things that need cleansing? Okay. Um, I don't know. But I am going to tell you that two of the ideas or two of the ways people seem to think that this makes sense is that it may be referring to us just as believers. We are the heavenly things who are meant to go into the presence of God. And um, some people, some scholars think this because of in verse 24, notice that it talks about Christ after he died and rose from that he ascended into heaven to appear for us. Now, he says, to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So perhaps we're those heavenly things that needed that cleansing. Okay, that makes sense. Um, other people think it's he's reaching back to chapter 9, verse 14, which we looked at last week. So if you, if you still got your Bible open, look at verse 14, where uh, the author says, How much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered um, himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So last week we talked about having a clear conscience, right? And that word purify is the same as being used in verse 23. So there are some who think that what the author is saying is that um, what Christ has done is purified our consciences or cleansed our consciences, which makes sense because as long as we are fearful of God, believing that he is has condemned us, or he's, our, he's judging us, we would never approach him. Right? How often do you run up to people you think want to kill you? And so perhaps the heavenly things themselves are our very consciences, which we've already seen in verse 14 have been cleansed, um, so that we can approach God. But this is a real key factor to how we have to understand Christianity and why so many people reject Christianity, what goes way down deep under different apologetics questions or different struggles with science or this or that, the other thing, all these, if you dig way, 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 way down, you often find that somebody does not think they could ever be accepted by a holy and righteous God. And that's true. You cannot be under your own merit, but Christ has died on our behalf. His blood, if we are believers, if we'll trust him, has washed away our sin. And therefore, he's also gone into the presence of God to represent us in the presence of God. And therefore, we can have that clear conscience and actually approach God without fear of condemnation. We approach him no longer as our judge, but as our Father, that's how we have a relationship with God. And this is what the culture around us doesn't understand about the Bible. 
Okay? The Bible's not about rules you need to obey in order to be right with God, but rather that the death of Christ is what begins a real relationship with God because it cleanses of our sin, cleanses, us, cleanses our conscience so that we can actually approach a holy and righteous God. Number four, the death of Christ removed the sins of believers from our record. Okay? The death of Christ has removed the sins of believers from our record. 25, he says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have, then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, that word, the phrase there to put away sin is one word that, that means removal. It means to remove. So the emphasis here is that Christ has appeared. He doesn't have to keep going again and again and again. Now, in the Old Testament, the high priest once a year would go in every single year. He kept, had to repeatedly do that. Because that was pointing to the one thing that Christ would do. The one sacrifice of himself that Christ would make and then go into the presence of God to represent us. And what that sacrifice has done, what that blood has done, has truly washed away the sin from our record. So legally, you and I stand before God declared righteous. Our sin has been removed from our record. One of the ways that I've... Try to illustrate this before, and um, it can be kind of helpful. Is if you think about this, see, at, at the cross, there's this great exchange where, if you imagine this book is um, your sin, and it's just page after page after page of what you've done wrong, and, and that without the death of Christ, this is how you would stand before God. This is all you'd have to present. Okay? And then imagine that my Bible is the long, long list of perfectly righteous things that Jesus did in his life. His perfect righteousness, his perfect righteous record, zero failure. And at the cross, there's this great exchange where what happens is God takes our sin from our whole record, past, present, and future, and he places it upon Christ. And he takes the righteousness of Christ and he places it on our record as if we had lived that life. And so legally, we stand righteous in God's sight all through faith. And what happened to that sin? Well, Jesus took our sin to the cross, died to pay for it, and then it was washed away and is now as far from us as the east is from the west, the bottom of the sea. So not only do we have to know what it means to have imputed righteousness, but it really truly matters deeply that we realize that Jesus has actually removed our sin through his death by taking it upon himself and then being punished in our place. The death of Christ has removed our sins. I mean, do you believe that? That's enough to sing God's praises nonstop forever. To be clean. To be really forgiven. Fifth, the death of Christ ensures believers of full salvation. The death of Christ ensures believers of full salvation. Let me explain what I mean. We'll read the text, 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, 
but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, if you think about the illustration that he's using of the high priest, the high priest would go in and then when he would come back out, it would be to continue to deal with the sins of the people. What he's saying is the fundamental difference about Jesus. Jesus has gone into the presence of God, the true tabernacle. And when he comes out, it's not to deal with our sin. That's done. That's already done. Our, our, the, the moment we believe our judgment day went from our future to our past. And so when he comes out, he's not coming out to deal with our sin or pay for our sin. He's already done that. He's coming to give us the, the fullness of salvation. The rest of what's been promised. And here's what's interesting about that. See, remember these Hebrew Christians, the author's trying to help them shift from being under the old covenant to under the new covenant. And one of the things that they're struggling with is, you know, Jews grew up believing that when the Messiah comes, he's going to liberate us, liberate us from Roman rule and everything's going to be wonderful then. And what they're dealing with is the fact that the Messiah has come, but life is not wonderful. Life is still hard. There are still challenges. They still have pain. They still have relational struggles. They still have work issues. They still have problems with their children. They still have an inability to really communicate with their spouse the way they want to. You name it. There's all these struggles. And you and I suffer from that same thing. We tend to think if Jesus is God and if he's really rescued me, then why is life still hard? Because the fullness of what has been promised has not yet been delivered. That's why. Jesus does not promise anyone a wonderful life right now. In fact, he says the opposite. In this life, you will have trouble, is what he says in John 16. And so what the author is helping them do is shift into waiting mode. Okay? Waiting mode. And not just waiting, but here's what's sweet about the Greek word there that we translate as waiting. It literally means to expect. So he's helping them transition into expecting mode. And when you expect that not everything's going to be right, not everything's going to be wonderful until Jesus returns, that changes the way you live right now. You stop expecting things to be cool right now. And you settle in with the reality that now is the time to hold fast. Cling to the one who's going to come back out of the tent. He just hasn't come back out yet. When he comes back out, he comes down and he makes all things new. And we have no more struggles. And all of the laws on all of our hearts. And we feel that forgiveness completely and perfectly. And we're with one another who all know the Lord. And everything is wonderful from then on. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we need to shift into. We need to break out of these... You know, something that's worked its way into American evangelicalism where if you trust Jesus, everything will get better. It's just not true. Not now anyway. Okay? If you trust in Jesus, then you know you get to live with the expectation that when he does return, yes, there's a lot of wonderful, powerful things he does in our lives right now. Don't get me wrong. But ultimately, that fullness of what has been promised has not yet come, but it will. And when it does, it'll come with the return of Christ. And we'll receive the fullness of that salvation. 
where we talk about salvation sometimes, how we've been set free from the penalty of sin. That's happened. We are being set free from the power of sin. That's happening right now. That's our sanctification. And when he returns, we will be set free from the very presence of sin. And we probably need to do a little more uh, thinking about the future together. Because the early church did. One author says the apostolic church thought more about the second coming of Jesus than about death and heaven. The early Christians were looking not for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. In other words, they weren't thinking that I'm trusting Jesus so that when I die, I'm okay. They were thinking I'm trusting Jesus because he's coming out of the tent. He's going to come back. And when he does, he's going to make all things new. And I get to be a part of that. Having received him by faith. And you see, you, you believe that we believe that if we believe that and we think about it more often, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we live. One, we don't expect things to be wonderful now. We know they're going to be hard and we hold fast to our king. And two, we we spend time dreaming and looking forward to what's to come. I'll close with this. I, one of my favorite stories I've heard um, is a story about an orphanage that was built in Africa. And they built this orphanage and then they brought in all these children and the workers would uh, spend time with these orphans in the morning teaching them about the good news of the gospel. And in over time, they had covered a lot of things as far as the return of Christ. And they had a, they had a real focus on the fact that Jesus would return. And they had, the kids had kind of picked up that he would come from the east. And they had kind of picked up that he would come with the sunrise. They had some ideas of how it was actually going to happen. And what the workers realized is they, as they would go get the kids for breakfast in the morning, more and more, They would not find the kids in their bed. They would find them pressed with their faces, pressed against the glass as the sun began to come up. Because they just wanted today to be the day. And then the workers would say, okay, guys, time to go to breakfast. And they'd all get down and run down and eat their breakfast. But every morning, they'd get up and they'd press their face against that glass. That's eagerly waiting. And it changes because as we think so much about our daily struggles, it helps us get our face up against the glass and worship. Because we know what we're expecting. We know what we're waiting for. He's coming out of the tent. And he's coming down with the kingdom in full. And from there on out, we have everything promised. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which liberates us to press our faces against the glass and long for the one who said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come back. For those of us who are going through difficult things, Lord, would you help us hold fast and not expect everything to go wonderfully now, but in the future when he comes out of the tent? For those of us who are not struggling quite as much, would you give us eyes to come around those who are going through difficult things and lift up their arms and help them hold fast and wait? Would you help us to eagerly wait, expectantly wait, 
and come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.